I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about the geopolitics surrounding Afghanistan, we have with us Dr. John Alterman, one of my longtime and closest colleagues, who is a senior vice president at CSIS. He's the Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and he's director of our Middle East program. John, thanks so much for joining us today. We've got a lot to talk about, but let me start first with Iran. What are Iran's interests in Afghanistan? They don't necessarily align in terms of religion with the Taliban, but what what are their interests in Afghanistan and, and what are they hoping to get out of the aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal? Thanks, Andrew. It's always good to be with you. You know, Iran has a lot of interests in Afghanistan. Not only is it a neighboring state, there, there are some things they're afraid of in Afghanistan. Drug smuggling is something that, that has been a long problem. And drug addiction is a big problem in Iran. I think they're concerned with some of the terrorist groups. They have worked out a modus vivendi with some of the terrorist groups in Afghanistan over time. I think they see some economic opportunities in Afghanistan. If you have an Afghan state that is isolated from the world and Iran is isolated from the world, then Iran can sell things in Afghanistan. They see Afghanistan as an embarrassment to the United States. That's good for Iran, which sees itself locked in a competition with the United States. I think that they see it as a place where they can deal. And the Iranians want to be in a position where they can deal, where they can negotiate, where they can advance things. There are a whole bunch of Afghan refugees in Iran. They've been there for years. I think you probably have more than a million Afghans in Iran now. Some of them are Sunni, some are Shia. Some have been enlisted in a in a brigade that has fought in Syria. Maybe they'll go back to Afghanistan. So I think Iran mostly sees Afghanistan as a place where it's on the board, where it has interests at play, where it's going to see what it can exploit, where it's going to see what it can advance as part of Iran's broader view that they're isolated in the world, that they don't have a lot of friends. If they can create a friendly border in Afghanistan, that would advance Iranian national security. I think they're they're going to be willing to do it regardless of whether there's a sectarian division between a Sunni Taliban leadership and a Shia Iranian leadership. And there is some precedence for the Iranian Shia leadership partnering with other Sunnis around the world, like Hamas, for instance, correct? With Hamas, with, with Palestinian Islamic Jihad, I mean, the Iranians are not hung up on the ideology. The Iranians are hung up on national interest. And the Iranians aren't hung up on sort of coloring somebody friend and enemy. I think the Iranians, and one of the reasons the Iranians have gained so much influence in Iraq is because they've been willing to do deals with anybody. And they've been willing to double cross people and they've been willing to advance things. I mean, the Iranians have a sense for what their national interest is and what steps they might want to take to advance it. And nobody is beyond the pale. I remember being told in Iraq five years ago that the Iranians had every imaginable group on the payroll in Iraq. 
that there were Sunnis on the payroll, that there were Shia on the payroll, that there were secular folks on the payroll, that there were Kurds on the payroll. Everybody's on the payroll. And the Iranians are maneuvering because they see themselves, again, not as as sort of dividing the world into friends and enemies, but seeing the world as where do I find an opportunity? Can I use that? Can I advance that? And it's it's there's a, a subtlety to the way the Iranians approach this that, that, that Americans, I think, in many ways accustomed to a Cold War division of friends and enemies, the free world and then the communist world, we just don't see the world that way. We, we want more purity. The Iranians don't even hope for purity. The Iranians say, look, the world isn't pure at all, but we have interests and how do we advance our interests? I want to talk about Iraq in a minute, but let me ask you, when it comes to Iran, what are some of the first specific things that you see them doing with the Taliban that might be you know, a problem for the United States? Well, look, the, the first thing they're doing is they're fanning the stories about how the U.S. is a completely unreliable partner. I'm not surprised they're doing it. I think it certainly advances their worldview and it helps make them feel less isolated in the world. They are clearly exploring increased trade with Afghanistan. The Iranians have oil they can't sell in the global market. The Afghans need oil and gasoline. And I would expect you're going to see the trade, which already was significant, actually tip upward. I would be concerned about Iranian forces or Iranian-backed forces moving into Afghanistan. They will have their own interests, and that could be a complicating issue. But I think the Iranians look at this as they look at many things. Where are the opportunities? Who could we make a deal with? Who could we explore an accommodation with? to advance our interests, and their interest is diminishing American hegemony, diminishing their isolation in the world, drawing more resources. That's what the Iranians are up to. I think they'll be looking for ways to do it. Do people around the world, do countries around the world buy this notion that the United States is an untrustworthy partner, you know, given what's just happened in Afghanistan? People look and wonder where the U.S. is going. There's, I think, a competence question that is coming up in people's minds that they feel that this has been bungled, this was misassessed, and we thought the Biden administration was going to be the one that did a proper assessment and acted accordingly. And I think people are are surprised. I think there is a question of American resolve and American loyalty to its partners and leaving people behind in Afghanistan. We're going to be hearing more and more stories about people left behind in Afghanistan. We'll give pause to people who feel they're taking risks in order to advance ideas they thought they shared in common with the United States. But there's also, and I think that there's a a question of of allies who feel they weren't consulted and they just have to go along for the ride. But I think there's something else going on, which is everybody understands there's no military in the world who could begin to do what the U.S. military is doing in Afghanistan. The U.S. military capability is light years ahead of anybody else's capability to do something that complicated, that far away from home, for as long as we want to do it, ultimately. is something nobody else can do. And I think that, you know, the first parts reinforce the tragedy of the second part, that there's 
nobody but the U.S. who can do it. So what does the U.S. really want to do? And that then becomes a source of insecurity because if, if we're not going to have the U.S. doing it, what do, will we have to do f- for ourselves? What will we have to accept not being done at all? The unsatisfactory nature of U.S. decision-making in their mind is exacerbated by the fact that the Americans are still the only ones who can do a lot of these things. And that is going to be a problem that that people are going to have to work through. And I think, you know, one of the opportunities for the Biden administration is using this to reinforce a sense of partnership and reassuring allies and partners, rather than having this be the beginning of a, a really deep divergence with allies and partners. So what happens in Iraq? I'm not sure anything immediately happens in Iraq. Prime Minister Cosme had a really successful visit to Washington. I think the Iraqis will spend a lot of time telling people that Iraq is not Afghanistan. You know, the U.S. ended combat operations and, and the Iraqis got ahead of that. And they got ahead of it in a way that supported the current Iraqi leadership for their own political needs. But I think if you're an Iraqi who is committed to partnership with the United States, you can't help but look at Afghanistan and get a little bit worried. Is the U.S. really going to stay there? Is the U.S. really committed if things got more uncomfortable, would the U.S. double down or walk away? And I think, you know, Iraq has elections coming up in October. Unclear how those will go. We could be looking at a very different environment in Iraq after October. And what the White House's relationship with Iraq would be without a prime minister who used to be the intelligence minister is committed to reducing the Iranian presence, is committed to partnership, is committed to a lot of the things the U.S. has wanted for Iraq, including connecting Iraq more with Arab states and, and you know, building energy trade with, with Jordan to wean them off Iran and all those kinds of things. If you don't have an Iraqi prime minister who is forward-leaning on that, will the Biden administration be forward-leaning on helping Iraq? I think it has to be an open question. So if you're the Iraqi leadership right now and you're going into an election this fall, you have to be concerned not only about the election, but you have to be concerned about what is going to happen with the United States interaction, ongoing interaction with Iraq and, you know, everyday people who are working with U.S. personnel there have to be worried as well as they see Afghans who did the same being left behind or being put on hold. And you have to wonder about how much wind in the sails the Iranians get out of what's happening in Afghanistan. So it, it, there's a lot going on. And I think that the Iraqis, you know, a lot of Iraqis would like to limit the Iranian influence in the country, that they resent it as a, a foreign force. Uh, but they also don't want to be occupied by the United States either. And how you walk that line between using the U.S. to balance against Iran, but not becoming the battleground where the U.S. and Iran fight, you know, it is a hard line to walk. I think that the prime minister is trying to walk that line, but we may have some very difficult days in Iraq coming up, or the Iraqis may 
figure out a way around this. I think it's it's too early to say. Now, we're often talking about terrorism in this region. And in fact, that's why we, we were there in the first place, of course. Lots of folks in Washington are worried these days. In fact, on a podcast last week, Seth Jones of CSIS and I had Alan Collison of the Wall Street Journal, who had just left Kabul, talk about how he thought Afghanistan was going to become a, a quote unquote burning man convention for terrorists. What do you think of that notion? Do you do you feel like it's a, a burning man jihadist convention on, you know, on the way there? I think it's probably a little bit overdrawn, but I would wonder whether any government in Afghanistan would have sufficient control over all the country to ensure that there was no place in the country where jihadis could establish a base. You know, if they're not going to be connected to Western intelligence services, you're going to be largely isolated. You're going to have all kinds of economic problems. It doesn't take a lot of money to buy somebody off and people are desperate. It's the conditions under which jihadis could have a foothold. Whether or not the central government wants to encourage it, I wonder if the central government is going to be in a position to prevent it. Under what circumstances would the central government be in a position to prevent it? And could you provide some sorts of incentives where the central government would want to prevent it and can be enabled to prevent it? And can you have a government in Afghanistan that, that people are going to want to work with? You know, everybody remembers what the Taliban were like. And nobody wants to work with that kind of government. But can there be a different kind of Taliban government? I've actually spoken to American diplomats who think that self-preservation is going to drive the Taliban toward being different. Maybe yes, maybe no. The Chinese seem to me to be the most forward-leaning in feeling that there will be something to work with. Whether that's true, how well it works, what happens when it doesn't work in some places, I think are all really hard questions we're going to be answering not, you know, in, in August, September, but in November, December. Right. And everybody, th that's the key question, isn't it? Everybody wants to know, has the Taliban 2.0 cleaned up their act in terms of governing, in terms of diplomacy, or are they going to flip the switch, go back to, you know, the, the dark ages? How are they going to govern? How are they going to um, relate to the rest of the world? One thing that we've all been talking about is, is the last time the Taliban were in power, the only countries that backed them were Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Pakistan. Now you have China, Russia, Iran, other major powers, the Pakistan, of course, as well. These are major world powers. If you have China recognizing you and Russia recognizing you as a legitimate government, what does that do to the United States? And how do you see that whole geopolitical picture there? I'm not sure recognition is the largest part of that. I mean, the, the real issue is, do you have ways to influence decision makers? And you can, we certainly were negotiating with the Taliban without recognizing their legitimacy as a government. And I think we had this phrase, you know, we don't recognize their, their legitimacy of the government, even though they call themselves the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, but we don't recognize their legitimacy. 
So I think you can you can dance around that. The real question is, is do you have tools to influence their behavior? And you know, I think one of the things that, that we've seen in some of our diplomacy, whether it's with Venezuela or Syria, you know, or the Houthis in Yemen, is we have these groups and we actually don't have a lot of tools to influence their behavior. You know, we have been appalled by the way they've behaved. And yet our combination of sanctions and threats and all those things haven't changed the behavior to be something we're happier with. And to me, that's the challenge we're going to have in Afghanistan is how do you get to a point where whoever the Afghan government is, and I could imagine that the Taliban is sort of a controlling force, but not the face. And, you know, Hamid Karzai is trying to make a comeback and whether he was always in bed with the Taliban, as some people have said, I mean, I don't know. But the, but the real issue is, are you really going to have an outlaw regime? Or are you going to have a government that is trying to normalize? And in trying to normalize, that gives you tools to influence and how much are you willing to influence and what is your agenda for what you're trying to influence? I think that the questions become really hard, but it seems to me the worst case scenario is if you have an Afghanistan that is totally cut off from like-minded countries, sees no prospect of not being cut off from like-minded countries, but gains enough from trade with China and trade with Iran that it can survive and can be, you know, perhaps evolve into the burning man for, for global terrorism because they're sailing rare earth minerals to the Chinese and, and doing other kinds of things, you know, enough cash to get by and desperate for enough cash that terrorists can buy in for cheap. And then you could really have a mess on your hands bordering a whole bunch of areas that are important. Now, I know that a lot depends on how the continued withdrawal goes, how Afghans who have worked with the United States go as far as getting them out safely, and certainly as far as how the Taliban behaves as they govern. But what is the U.S. strategy going to be going forward? Do you think we'll have a real articulated strategy from this administration. And, you know, the Congress, of course, never authorized the war. You know, where does U.S. strategy go from here? I'm not sure who sort of owns Afghanistan when you get below the level of the, the White House National Security Advisor. I mean, the National Security Advisor president can't own an issue. There need to be people who are the action officers. And, and I'm not sure who the action officers are. On this, you know, the reports that Bill Burns, the CIA director, was just in Afghanistan talking to the leadership. They seem to be looking for a Holbrook-like figure to be able to come in and make everything okay here. And certainly, Ambassador Burns is somebody of that ilk. But he's got a pretty busy job. Yeah, and he's got he's got other things going on. He's got other things he needs to do. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, Zakhalilzad negotiated this agreement. I think he's. He's not going to be the person the Biden administration uses going forward. I'm not sure how they're going to do it. And, and, you know, I, I think we're going to have to see the dust settle a little bit, see where the American public is, see 
how the evacuation goes and who's left behind and how the Taliban behave, how Afghan politics consolidate in the coming weeks and months. I think that, you know, in many ways, the president had the seed of his strategy, which was, we're not going to just keep kicking the can down the road. We're going to have a different, a different approach. But I think it's actually appropriate to see where we are before we just we decide on what our new desired end state is. You know, one of the, the, the things, and it's been true of our serious strategy for more than a decade. I think it was true of our, our Afghanistan strategy for more than two decades or for two decades. What's your desired end state? Which is a, in some ways a fundamental question. And it's remarkable that we haven't answered that question in Afghanistan. I would hope that in the second half of this year, there will be some serious discussion in the Biden administration about what our desired end state is and what tools we can use to get there, what instruments we have, how do we work with partners and allies. Instead, I think we've always sort of talked about what do we want? And when you say, what do you want? You can deal with a country like Afghanistan, you can, you can get an endless list. What's a realistic end state? And what are the tools you can use to get there, I think is a discussion we haven't had about Afghanistan in a very long time. I think that's the discussion we need to have. It will take months to figure it out. Um, there are going to be a lot of moving pieces, including China, including Iran, including other things. But I think we're, we're going to have to have it. And, and I think it would be appropriate as we get to, to midterm elections in 2022, as people think about the president's foreign policy achievements and challenges that people say, so are we on a course towards something better in Afghanistan or not? I think the, the president felt that that we were addicted to Afghanistan, that we kept feeding the addiction, but we weren't solving the, any of the problems. And the challenge for the president is, okay, so where are we going? And I think if there's a sense of where we're going, that will obviate some of the criticism of how this was handled because you're on a course towards something better. The worst is if you're not on a course to anything, it's all all collapsing and you're the one who caused the collapse. I'm not, I don't think that's necessarily where we have to be by the end of this calendar year. What do you think China is going to do? Are they going to develop an Afghanistan addiction? The Chinese are pretty averse to overseas addictions. You know, this is a country that, that literally has no allies in the world. They don't believe in alliances. They have one overseas base in Djibouti, one. China likes being the big dog in a bilateral relationship. They like staying home. I think that they are certainly concerned about how Afghanistan could develop. They are worried about a, what they see as, as a, a terrorist movement in the West, which is the justification for the suppression of, of their very large Uyghur population. And they're concerned with how that might play out and how Afghanistan could be a base. Afghanistan could help fund an insurgency against China. They see themselves having money. They see Afghanistan as a place with some things they might want to exploit, might want to mine. I would expect they're going to come in and try to buy some people off. Whether it turns into more than a commercial operation, I think not. You know, they've gotten a little burned by Pakistan where they initially had, had hopes for what their 
partnership might look like, and I think they've gotten soured on it. So I think they're going to try to keep Afghanistan arm's distance. They will engage economically. They will be happy to, to pay people off if you have to pay people off. But I can't imagine they're going to start sending a lot of people and, and getting exposed because I don't think they see it as as the way they operate in the world. And what can we expect from Mr. Putin? He's a counterpuncher, and this gives him an opportunity to counterpunch. He's got some knowledge of Afghanistan. He has some some assets in Afghanistan. I'd expect that that he will try to make life miserable for us. They certainly also have their scars from Afghanistan, so I think they're not going to want to invest very much. But the Russians love doing things at bargain basement prices. And if they can make trouble for us at a bargain basement price, I think they're going to make trouble for us at a bargain basement price, whether it's just sort of on the on the information level and saying, look, the Americans were totally incompetent and abandoned their friends or, or some other level. I think that they, they largely benefited from the American presence in Afghanistan, the counter-narcotics work and other things we were doing. I think they have some problems coming down the pike. I think that they will tried to limit some of that. They certainly don't want the Chechen rebellion starting up again, having a base in Afghanistan. They're, they're willing to be ruthless, which will help them. They may cut some deals. But I think so there'll be a combination of seeing if he can exploit things to make trouble for us and then acting in a pretty ruthless way to deal with the vacuum we've left on issues like counterterrorism and counter-narcotics. John, as always, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter on these critical geopolitical issues surrounding the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. I should also mention that John is the host of another CSIS podcast called Babel, which is really fantastic and you should give it a try. Thanks again, John. Andrew, it was good to talk to you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 